Well, good morning. Uh, today we're going to be looking at a passage in Matthew chapter 12. This is Matthew 12, verses 38 through 45. Uh, Matthew 12, 38 through 45, it reads, Then some of the Pharisees, then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered, saying, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up in judgment with this generation and condemn it, because they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and indeed a greater than Jonah is here. The Queen of the South will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and indeed a greater than Solomon is here. When an unclean spirit goes out of a man, he goes through dry places seeking rest and finds none. Then he says, I will return to my house, which I came. And when he comes, he finds it empty, swept, and put in order. Then he goes and takes with him seven other spirits more wicked than himself. And they enter and dwell there. And the last state of the man is worse than the first. So shall it be with this wicked generation. Now, I don't know about you, but when I was growing up uh, throughout school, there was a phrase that would often come out that would be something along the lines of, well, prove it. And it's a phrase that usually was stated after someone would say that they could do some kind of impressive talent, like a cartwheel or um, a handstand. Or someone would say, I can solve a Rubik's Cube or I could play an instrument. And whatever the talent might be, oftentimes people wanted the proof to show that they could actually do that. Proof is also uh, required in one of my most dreaded subjects throughout school, which was math. Uh, it was never enough for the teacher to see that you got the right answer she was looking for. You needed to show proof or the work on the side to prove that you knew how to get to that answer in order for her to believe that you didn't just look in the back answer key of a book. Proof is also necessary when identifying someone for something. For example, if you were to uh, cross the border or if you're to enter a country or get on a plane for that matter, they're going to check your ID to ensure that you are who you say you are. Uh, if you ever go to the airport, when you have a boarding pass, they're going to look at your ID next to it or your passport. I remember just six years ago, I had to get my passport renewed and just the absolute hassle that it was getting the requirements to get this passport because, uh, <clears throat> you know, at the end of it, you wonder, is it even worth the hassle of getting this passport when you're all done with this long scavenger of the hunt they have for you? Uh, I looked at the most recent guidelines or the most re recent requirements for it. And uh, first of all, you need to uh, show, the, fill out this form they have for you with all your information, and then you have to show them some form of uh, proof that you are a U.S. citizen, whether it be a birth certificate or um, social security card. Then you have to fill out a, uh, or get a photo of yourself through a third party and present that picture, and it has to be a certain requirement of how big or how small the picture needs to be. And then you need to get you, show them your driver's license, and then once you've done that, then you have to stand in line for an hour or more just to pay a $130 fee to get this uh, passport. And then at the end of that, you have to then wait a couple more weeks for them to mail it to you, or you could pay additional fees in the hopes that you know it expedites quicker to you. And it's just quite the process of getting that done. 
But what if at the end of doing all that, what if after end, the end of that long ordeal of showing all this proof that, you know, you are who you say you are, you get to the border of, you know, the country that issued you the passport. And when you get there, they say, you know, show me your passport. You say, okay, here you go. They look at it and they look back at you. They look back at it, look back at you. And you say, is everything okay? And they say, um, do you have any other form of identification? Is there any other proof that you are who you say you are? And you're like, uh, no, I, I took all the proof that I had in order to give this to you to show you that I am who I say I am. And, uh, you know, you're like, well, what, what more do you want from me? And they say, well, I'm sorry, I, I need more evidence. Otherwise, I can't let you back in the country. And uh, you might say, well, you know, <clears throat> that's obviously a hypothetical. And it is a hypothetical situation. But could you imagine that happening? Imagine having all the proof that you are who you say you are. And the people around you refuse to believe it. And, and what's more, they want even additional proof. And this really isn't just a hypothetical situation because this is exactly what happened. Not a passport, but when identifying Jesus Christ, the people of Jesus' day refused to believe that he is who he says he is. The Pharisees, the scribes, they were given endless signs, endless um, evidence to prove that Jesus Christ is who he says he is. I just want to look back at some of the summaries of, of what he's done so far. And this will include really all the gospel encounters to give a more, a more full picture of the proof or the evidence that he's shown so far. We know from the gospel encounter of John that he turned water into wine. We read all throughout the four gospels that he has healed those who were sick, those who had phys physical disabilities. He has given sight to the blind, hearing to the deaf, speech to the mute and mobility to the crippled. We read of two separate feedings, the 5,000 that he feeds, as well as the 4,000. We read of the time where he calmed the winds and the waves. He has healed, in all the accounts, demon-possessed people. He has walked upon water. And if that were not enough evidence, he's also brought back a dead man to life with Lazarus. And even still, with all this proof that Jesus is who he says he is, the scribes and Pharisees had the audacity to essentially say, we want more proof. We want more signs, more miracles. What they really wanted was a spectacle from Jesus because they're not convinced to their liking that he is the son of God. It wasn't that Jesus hadn't done enough signs. It wasn't that he was ambiguous about who he is or who he was. It wasn't that he didn't claim to be God. It's not that God didn't give them even enough light to see this. It's that when God gave them the light to see who Jesus is, they rejected it. They refused to accept him as their Messiah, despite being shown more than enough evidence. If they hadn't already believed the light that they had been given by the Lord, then they certainly wouldn't believe if he continued giving them more and more light, more and more signs. In fact, <clears throat> the more signs would only condemn them for their unbelief. And so... Let's just read the response of the Lord to this unbelieving generation. He says in verse 38, Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered, saying, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Now these may sound like harsh words from the Lord, but they are essential to be said. This generation was evil because 
Like I said, they were given so much light, and yet they were blinded willfully to see their Messiah standing right before them. And they were adulterous because they were spiritually unfaithful to the Lord. They had Jesus, God himself, standing before them, claiming to be their Messiah, proving and backing up his claim by supporting it with countless miracles and signs, and yet upon seeing him face to face, they had the audacity to say, we need another sign. They essentially said to him, what we have seen isn't enough. Prove it again for us. Prove again one more time for us. And he says, no, no sign will be given except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And so the first question that probably arises in your mind is, what is Jesus saying? What is he saying by only the only sign that will be given is the sign of Jonah? Well, really what he's saying is that uh, I will give you the sign of Jonah, which refers to Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection ultimately. If you remember uh, or need a quick refresher on the book of Jonah, Jonah was a disobedient prophet who was told to go to Nineveh. He was told to speak to these people, uh, proclaiming this impending judgment. But he refused because he didn't like that idea. He didn't want to go there. And God caused there to be a great storm. There was men on the boat who eventually threw him overboard. He was swallowed by a great fish. He stays in the belly of the fish for three days. And on the third day, Jonah was ultimately spit out of the belly of the fish and onto dry land. And in the same way that Jonah was in the belly of a great fish, so Jesus would die, be buried in a tomb, and rise again to life. This would be the final, the greatest sign that he would show the nation of Israel. This would be an undisputable sign that he indeed is the Messiah. He indeed is God. I mean, if you think about it, what more could this generation really want? If this man is claiming that he can resurrect himself, that would be, you would think, there's there's no questioning that they would believe after that. And yet, you know, even we know afterwards, after he raises himself to life, we know that they still refuse to believe him. The vast majority refuse to believe him because they were willfully blinded by their choice to ignore all the evidence and all the signs that pointed to the fact that he is the Messiah. This may not be a, uh, a question that came in your mind, but it, it came in my mind, and I know uh, some other commentators had spoken on it, so I thought I would address it. Um, some people, when they read the, the phrase three days and three nights, that the Son of Man will be in the heart of the earth three days and three nights, they think, okay, well, Jesus died on Friday night, and he rose again Sunday morning, and it says three days and three nights, and how can that be three days and three nights? You know, they, they, he needed to be there an entire 72 hours. How, oh, no, it's not adding up. And, and people get, you know, maybe worried in their mind as to how maybe it's confusing to them. And while it can be somewhat confusing initially, you need to realize that uh, the phrase a day and a night is a phrase that just simply refers to a 24-hour period or any part of a period that's 24 hours. Uh, there's a, a well-known Jewish book called the Talmud. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. But there's a saying in the Talmud that goes, any part of one is as the whole. Any part of one is as the whole, which means that to the Jews of Jesus' day, that any part of a day or any night counts as a complete period of time. If I were to say to you, I'm, you know, starting Friday evening or starting on Friday, I'm going to go down to Disneyland and I'm going to come back uh, Sunday. 
you know, you might think, okay, well, he'll be there for three days. You could say that, but realistically, most of Friday, I'm probably going to spend driving down to Disneyland. I may only get there for the evening hours. And then Sunday morning, I might think, you know, I should probably leave early today because I need to be back for work the next day. And so although I didn't spend an entire 72 hours there, I can legitimately say that I was in Disneyland for three days. And that's the idea, is that there was three days spent in the tomb. Jonah spent three days in the belly of the great fish, and so the Lord could also say that he was three days in the heart of the earth. That may not be a confusing point to you, but for me it was at least helpful to look into that. So going back to the passage, with all the evidence, with all the signs, with all the miracles that he's done, what are the consequences then of the unbelieving, unrepentant hearts of this generation of Jews? Verse 41 tells us, The men of Nineveh will rise up in judgment with this generation and condemn it, because they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and indeed a greater than Jonah is here. Just to look more closely at the life of Jonah, we had mentioned he is a prophet, or he was a prophet. God told him to go to the Gentile people of Nineveh, and to tell them about the impending judgment and destruction that God was about to bring upon them. The Ninevites were a wicked, idolatrous group of people. They didn't have the law of God like the Jews did. They were not his chosen people like the nation of Israel was. They didn't have the promises given to them like God gave the Jews. These were Gentiles. Uh, According to the Jewish people, these were people they considered as dogs. These are people. considered people without understanding. They're estranged from God. And who does God decide to send their way? They send, he sends Jonah, a man who describes himself as foolish, sinful, and rebellious. In fact, Jonah didn't even want to be there in the first place. He purposely tried to evade God's command by taking a journey in the opposite direction. And so you have this wicked, idolatrous, sinful people of Nineveh receiving a message from a sinful, foolish, and rebellious man named Jonah, who doesn't even want to be there in the first place. And he has just spent the last three days in the belly of a fish that's then spit up upon land, probably smells horrible, and he comes to the Ninevites, and he has this message. And what is this message? Is it love and joy? No, it's, it's doom and destruction and judgment for their sins. And you know what else is interesting about Jonah is that Jonah didn't come with any signs. Jonah didn't have any uh, miraculous display to back up what he was saying. He just simply said, the Lord told me to tell you this, and here's the, here's the judgment coming for you. And so all they had was this message, and a very depressing message at that. And do you know what the people of Nineveh did in response to this message of destruction, despite not having any signs or miracles to prove it? It says in Jonah 3.5 that the people believed God. You know, that must have been a shock for Jonah to witness. This Gentile, men and women, believed the word that God had given Jonah. And it's not that they just believed. It went farther than that. To show the seriousness of their repentance, it says the people of Nineveh proclaimed a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. It says that the word uh, came to the king of Nineveh and he arose from his throne, laid aside his robe, covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. And he caused it to be proclaimed and published throughout Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, saying, Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily to God. Yes, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. 
Who can tell if God will turn and relent and and turn away his fierce anger so that we may not perish? So from the people to the animals, they're covered in sackcloth and ashes. They are repentant for their sins. And what is God's response to their belief and repentance? It says in verse 10 of chapter 3, Then God saw their works, that they turned from their evil way, and God relented from the disaster that he had said he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. And so God saw that they were truly repentant of their sins, and he held back the judgment that he had said would come to them. So you have now this Gentile, pagan, even idolatrous, evil idolatrous people of Nineveh receiving, believing, and then repenting of their sins upon hearing the words of God. Despite the fact that the prophet sent to them didn't even want to be there in the first place. He proclaims himself to be sinful, foolish, and rebellious. He came with no signs or miracles. And then you compare the response of the Ninevites to the response of the Jews of Jesus' time, of Jesus' days. These were Jews, not Gentiles. They were God's chosen people. God had given them promises, blessings, and he gave them his law. They gave, he gave them his law. It says in verse 41, Indeed, a greater than Jonah is here. And you might think, well, who is that describing? That's Jesus. Jesus is the one who is greater than Jonah. God didn't send Jonah to his chosen people. He sent the God of Jonah to them in human flesh. God had physically sent his own son in the form of a man to speak to them of their need for a savior. He was the one who directly spoke to them face to face. They were looking at him eye to eye and they could not even recognize him because they were too blind. He came to this earth with countless miracles and signs, greater than all the other prophets, including Jonah. He came to this earth not grudgingly like Jonah, but he came willingly. He is greater than Jonah because he didn't come as a sinful, rebellious, foolish man like Jonah, but he was sinless, he was obedient, and he, was all, he had all wisdom. He is greater than Jonah because he is perfect and he spoke authoritatively about their need for a savior. And if you really think about it, the Ninevites were given such a small amount of light, and yet they repented with sackcloth and ashes. And the nation of Israel, they were given, in comparison, far more light than they ever knew what to do with. And yet their hearts were hardened. They turned a blind eye to the truth. And they were given someone so much greater than Jonah to witness them. And so, because of their utter rejection and because of their failure to repent, it says that the men of Nineveh will rise up in judgment with this generation and condemn it. Because of the amount of light this generation received in comparison to the Ninevites, they should have repented long ago. And by the men of Nineveh choosing to believe the Lord with less light than the Jews, it condemns the Jewish people for their failure to respond when so much more light was given to them in their days. But as we know, the Ninevites were not the only one who are going to condemn this generation. Jesus has another person named the Queen of the South who will condemn this generation by her actions. Verse 42 talks about her. The Queen of the South will rise up in judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And indeed, a greater than Solomon is here. And you might be asking yourself, well, who is this Queen of the South? Well, she's mentioned in 1 Kings 10. She is this queen of what would today be modern-day Yemen. And she had heard these reports about Solomon's wisdom, about his fame from God. 
and she desires to meet with him, and she wants to ask him some difficult questions in the hopes that she can gain some knowledge from him. And during her time, uh, she wouldn't be able to just simply fly a plane over or hop in a car and be there in a couple hours. In fact, if you actually look up how far this distance is on a map, uh, it's between Yemen and Jerusalem. This is roughly 1,400 to 1,500 mile journey each way. So this would have been a very long trek. This probably would have been a, uh, who knows, I mean, 30 miles a day. You'd be on horses or camels. You'd be at it for quite a few months, I would assume. And the thing is that her travel there was solely based on reports that she had heard. She had never seen this man face to face. And yet, because she was motivated to seek out his wisdom, she then decides that she's going to go out and she's going to pursue this course of a long journey ahead of her. And when she gets there, she finds that not only were the reports true, but the half was not told to her. Solomon's wisdom had far exceeded her expectations. And you might think, okay, well, that's interesting. Uh, why does Jesus even mention her? The reason he mentions her is because this woman was a Gentile woman. She was living and ruling over a godless, idolatrous country. And yet she hears a report about a man 1,500 miles away that has the wisdom of God. And so believing that Solomon is going to be as good as the reports say, she takes off on this incredible journey, what would seem like almost across the world, to seek out the truth. And yet the Jewish nation, it says, that indeed a greater than Solomon is here. Jesus is greater than even the wisdom of Solomon. And the remarkable thing is that the Jewish people didn't have to go 1,500 miles to journey for the hopes of finding someone based on reports given to them. They had the God of Solomon standing right in front of them. They had the source of all wisdom right in their midst. And yet they didn't inquire of him to gain understanding. And they didn't look to him to gain truth of spiritual things. The Queen of Sheba would have had excuses to say, you know, that's too far. I don't want to go that far. I don't know if the reports are good enough to make that journey out there. She would have a reason to not seek out the wisdom of Solomon. But this generation of Jews will have no excuse for not seeking the wisdom of Jesus Christ. And so both Jonah and the Queen of South will rise up and condemn this unrepentant, unbelieving Jewish generation of Jesus' day. But you see, this was spoken to the Jewish generation of Jesus' day, but the application to today is still there. The people of today's world continually still ask God for a sign. I've heard this many times in my life. If God would just come back and perform a miracle, then I'd believe him. You know, I don't know if you've heard that before in your life, but, or someone else will say, you know, if he would just show me a sign from heaven, I would believe that he is who he says he is. Or if he would raise my family member from the dead and they would speak to me, then I would place my trust in him. And we tend to believe that if a person was just given a sign from heaven, or if God would directly speak to them, then that person would believe in the Lord. But we know this isn't true because there's a story that Jesus tells in Luke 16 of a rich man who is currently in hell. And the rich man requires that someone be sent to his father's household to warn his five brothers and testify to them about the torment he's facing in hell. And the response that the rich man gets is, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear from them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if one goes from the dead, they will repent. But he said to them, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. And the idea here that Jesus is trying to convey is that even then, and even right now, 
that there is more than enough evidence to believe in the Lord. There is more than enough proof for a person to make a decision to repent of their sins and to trust upon the Lord for salvation. The world doesn't need more signs. The world wants more signs. They have more than enough, though. And how can I say that? I say that because one of the greatest evidences that Jesus is who he says he is, is seen in the resurrection. And if you ever have the time or the days off to do it, I highly recommend going to Israel. And you can go to the actual tomb where he was buried. And I can assure you that it's been buried it's been empty for 2,000 years. It continues to be empty for 2,000 years. You can walk through it and see that there is no one there. And if that wasn't enough, you have historical documentation. Over 500 people after the resurrection of Jesus Christ witnessed him with their own eyes, proving and attesting to the fact that he did rise from the dead. It's undeniable evidence to support the fact that Jesus Christ is who he says he is. And even if you forgo that and don't even think about that, you have all the other miracles recorded through the Gospels. You have creation itself daily displaying the goodness of God in the skies. You have the land and all the beautiful things that he's created, all attesting to the fact that there is a creator who has made it. You have, um, you know, the Dead Sea Scrolls proving the fact that there are prophecies that were fulfilled before they ever took place, or fulfilled before uh, they were ever written. You have all these evidences. There is so much light for you and I. And for a person to claim that they somehow need more proof, more signs, more evidence, is to be willfully blind to the vast libraries of evidence that God has already provided for us. And there are people who will reject Jesus. They'll reject his resurrection. They'll reject his wisdom. They may go to church and, and know a lot, about, a lot of facts about Jesus. But if they've never placed their faith in him, if they've never truly trusted him for their salvation... Then someday, the Ninevites and the Queen of the South will, by contrast, condemn them in judgment for their unbelief. And this passage really brings up the fact that if a person who is afar off, with minimal amounts of light, can believe, then how much more responsible are you and I to believe when God has given us abundance of light in comparison? If you have not repented or trusted in the Lord for your salvation, I just... I just cry out and just pray that you would make that decision today to do so. Now, to the Pharisees, hearing this and hearing what Jesus has been saying so far, they might be thinking, well, who is Jesus speaking to? Clearly, he's talking about someone else than me. I'm a good moral person. I don't do bad things like these people you hear about. I'm not like today's world society where you see on the news and doing all these terrible things. In fact, this is the exact view that a Pharisee had of themselves. They would even pray this way. There's a story of, uh, that uh, Jesus gives of how a Pharisee would claim their good behavior, their righteous behavior, before the Lord. It says of a story in Luke 18 of two men who went up to a temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. And the Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, idolaters, and even as this tax collector. And here, this Pharisee is coming before the Lord with, you know, showing how righteous he is and how he's not a sinful person. And to prove this point further, he's about to give his resume to the Lord 
of all the good things he's done to show that he is a good moral person. He says, first of all, I fast twice a week. Secondly, I give tithes of all that I possess. And the tax collector, though, on the other hand, standing afar off, would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Do you see the contrast between the two men? You have on one hand the, the Pharisee claiming to be a righteous man, but he's blinded by his own, uh, he's blinded to see his own sin because he thinks that he can earn merit in the sight of God based on his own deeds. Whereas the tax collector, on the other hand, well aware of his sins, can earn favor in the sight of God because he can see his need for the Lord and can admit his need for a Savior. On one hand, you have the Pharisee who thinks he can approach the Lord with his good standards of morality and never have a personal relationship with the Lord. On the other hand, you have a sinner who knows he's not right with the Lord, but because of his, because of his sin, but based on his own, not based on his own merit, he can gain a relationship with the Lord because he accepts the invitation of salvation. You see, the Lord desires a relationship with you, but some people are quite content simply just cleaning up or reforming some areas of their lives without ever making room for the Lord, without ever allowing him to be Lord over every part. And so in this next section, Jesus is going to uncover what happens in the demonic realm. And it's really not so much to describe or to teach us on demons or what happens in the demonic realm, but it's more so to give us a stern warning to those who think that they can outwardly clean up their lives without accepting Jesus as their savior and without allowing him to change them from the inside out. And so in order to drive this point home, he is about to give a story of an unclean spirit. And an unclean spirit is just simply a demon or a fallen angel. And verse 43 picks up where this, this, uh, story begins. When an unclean spirit goes out of a man, he goes through dry places seeking rest and finds none. As we know in the Gospels, there are people who, got, who uh, Jesus encountered that while he was on this earth, it said that he has cast out demons from them. And from this passage, we learn that when a demon leaves a man, he goes through dry places, whether it be a, a desert or some kind of dry area, searching for a place of rest. Now, demons, they are spirit beings, and apparently when they leave a host, they long to find the next dwelling place. They long to find a host to stay in. They like to be residing within a body that's open and unoccupied. They're looking for an opening and seeking to find rest there. Their goal, ultimately, is to find a permanent dwelling place. And so this demon has been cast out and yet hasn't come to find a home of its own. But this passage goes on to say in verse 44, Then he says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when he comes, he finds it empty, swept, and put in order. And so this demon, he's been traveling. He finds no resting place, no place to inhabit. And then this demon remembers where he came from. And he kind of has a somewhat of a, a claimed territory on this location. In fact, he even says that I will return to my house from which I came. He isn't just looking for this temporary holding place. He's looking for a permanent residency. And so he goes back to the human that he has just occupied before, and he will return to occupy them. And why is that? The, you might think, you know, how is it possible? Jesus just cast him out. The person's house is swept and put in order. How can it be that they were doing all these things to get their life in order? They look spiritually healthy on the outside. They attend church. They sing praises to the Lord. 
You know, they're not involved in the unhealthy lifestyle habits they used to be involved in. How is it that the demon can inhabit this man? And the reason for that, and really the key word of this verse, is that when the demon returns, he finds the home empty. The person is empty inwardly. They may have gone through a 12-step program. Maybe they began cleaning up their lives. Maybe they decided to cut out some bad friends in their life. Maybe they stopped doing some harmful habits like drugs or they stopped drinking excessively. Maybe they even began going to church and reading their Bible. <clears throat> you know, there's even criminals who have moments in their lives where they try to shape up and they try to act lawfully, whether that's from the fear of jail or it's the fear of disappointing family or friends or even for religious reasons. You know, every December 31st, you hear about people constantly making New Year's resolutions on how they are going to change their lives, how they will get this or that in order, how they're going to make this new reform in their life. And some people think, or somehow people think, that if they just work on cleaning up their lives, then all will be well. And this man in the store, he has done it all. He has swept everything. He's put it in order, at least outwardly. And it appears from the outward that all things are coming along for this man. But it says inwardly he is found empty. He doesn't have anyone residing within him. He has room for Jesus, but he hasn't accepted him as his savior. He has cleaned up his life. He's reformed his way of living, but he doesn't have, and the key word is, a relationship with Jesus. He does not have a relationship with Jesus. He may do all the Christian things. He may appear to be righteous, but he doesn't have a heart that's inwardly changed and open to accepting Jesus as his Lord. He has not made room for the Lord to gain access into his life. And so what's the pitfall of it happening, or this happening? Well, it says that the demon returns. Upon seeing the state of the person, it says that he then goes and takes with him seven other spirits more wicked than himself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of the man is worse than the first. So shall it be with this wicked generation." This man thought that he was righteous. He had thought he cleaned up his act. And in doing so, he thought he was doing well, despite being empty inwardly. And so the demon that went out then comes back and brings with himself seven more wickedly, seven demons even more wicked than himself. And they find permanent residency in this man. This man, thinking that he was well off, ends up being in a worse off state than he started with. And Jesus likens this generation of Jews to this man. They had outwardly cleaned up their lives. They had outwardly been religious. They had seemed nice and tidy, swept, put in order. But they were empty because they did not inwardly trust the Lord and accept his offer of salvation. And so they're susceptible to demonic influences. And today, Jesus is not asking you to clean up your life. He's not asking you to go through a 12-step program. He's not asking you to make a New Year's resolution to change your life. He's not asking you to be a better person. He's asking you to enter into a relationship with him and to allow his Holy Spirit to dwell within you. The Jews saw no need for a Savior, and because of that, their guard was down. They didn't expect that it would lead them into a worse state. And there are many people like this. I know many people I went to school with Early on in their lives, they had, quote, accepted the Lord in their lives. They had made a, a vow that they would turn their life around, and they brought Jesus along into that mix. But they never had a true relationship with him. 
And it seemed all well when they were still going to church, but when they had to make decisions for themselves in college, they went off the deep end, spiritually, if you will, and getting into sins that they promised they would never get into. Now those sins are part of their daily lives. And you say, well, what happened? Why did they go that way? It's because they never truly accepted the Lord. They didn't enter into a relationship with Him. And they don't have the Holy Spirit working in them. And so although their house was put in order, they were empty and vulnerable for the devil and his demons to put them in a worse state than they began. The point of all this is that Jesus wants a relationship with the Jews, and they did not want to have it. And they're blinded by their rejection and their thoughts on how their house was in order. And so now they're in a worse state than if they had just simply entered into that relationship by faith alone and trusted in the Lord as their Messiah. But the warning today still exists. Are you like the Jews of Jesus' day, who has outwardly cleaned up their lives, but inwardly has never opened the door of their heart to Jesus? For us today, if we accept Jesus as our Savior, the Bible tells us that we are not dwelt by a demon, but rather by the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit does not lead us off to a worse state than we started, but rather the Holy Spirit, if we allow Him to work in our lives, will conform us to be more and more Christ-like, not merely just helping us fix our outward appearance, but starts inwardly so that our outward actions are out of a ch- out, our outward actions are just out of the abundance of a changed life inwardly. So my only questions to you are just, do you have a relationship with the one who is greater than Jonah, who is greater than Solomon? Do you have a relationship with Jesus? Do you have room for him? Have you, have you swept your life in order but not actually made room for him? Have you trusted in him? And if you haven't, why not? You've been given so much light, so much evidence, so many reasons to confidently trust him. And after warning you of the pitfalls of going down a path, it's my prayer that you wouldn't be like this Jewish people of Jesus' day that are marked by rejection, but rather that you would make the choice today to believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's just pray. Dear Lord Jesus, we just thank you for your word. We thank you for uh, the clarity of it. We just thank you, Lord, for this warning, Lord, of, of the pitfalls of going down a path of not fully submitting to you and trusting you and having a relationship. Lord, I pray if anyone today has not accepted that gift of salvation, they would today trust you and begin living a life of honoring you and and following you, and Lord, uh, really a life of abundance and joy. I pray, Lord, today that you would work in the heart of anyone who has not yet received that salvation that you offer so freely. I pray all these things in your name. Amen.